Life, how's everybody this week? Doing well? Staying healthy? Staying full? Have I got enough coffee? Enough sleep? Enough? Definitely not enough sleep. Everybody's asleep looking at me this morning. Except for those eating their donuts and drinking their coffee. Other than that. Well, this morning we are going to celebrate finishing the book of Hebrews. The last 12 weeks has been, actually, this is, I've preached 11 messages and then I had Joel around, uh, guest speaker, one, one week as well. So 12 weeks, we've gone through 13 chapters of Hebrews and we're really trying to discover how great Jesus is. And we've listened to what the author has said. We've listened to how he talks about Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus was greater, greater than the law. He's greater than the Old Testament, greater than all these things, greater than the temple, greater than the tabernacle, greater than the old sacrifices, greater than the old covenant. Jesus is greater. But I thought about I put the shirt on this morning, did not mean to. It's the greater than symbol on my shirt. I thought this really kind of symbolizes Jesus. He is greater than all. And I wasn't going to be cheesy and show you all, but then I decided to be cheesy and show you all. Um, but he is really greater than all that we have. He's greater than our old sins. He's greater than our old life. He's greater than our fears. He's greater than our frustrations. He's greater than COVID and the alert we got an hour ago. He is greater than all those things. And so the author of Hebrews here, in this final chapter, this letter he's writing to the Hebrews, he's summing it all up and giving them his final thoughts. Much like we do when we write a letter to somebody at Christmas time or whatever. Oh, here's all the, here's all the stuff that's going on. Johnny did this, and Sarah Jane did that, and, and we did this this year. We went to the Grand Tetons, we did Grand Canyon, we went to the Rocky Mountain National Forest, blah, 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 blah. And at the end, just a quick summation. My final thoughts. And that's what the author is giving us here in chapter 13 of Hebrews. His final thoughts. And there's 10, uh, what I call 10 uh, admonitions he gives to the church and to us as well. Last week we talked about the first five. How we were to show love toward the saints. Love toward others in Christ, right? We are to show love toward strangers. Those we run into on the street that we have no clue who they are. We're to show love toward them. We're to show love toward the mistreated and the imprisoned. Those who, of their, uh, sometimes they've, they've been imprisoned by their own volition. But sometimes people are just mistreated. And we need to make sure we are showing love to them as well. We're to honor marriage. We're to honor the marriage bed. And, and I found out later some of the kids were like, Pastor, you said the S word last week. You talked about sex. And I'm like, yeah, we talked about that in marriage and how wonderful it is and how awesome it is. And whoosh, the red faces were awesome with senior kids. Yeah. Um, Talk about how we need to honor marriage. We need to hold money loosely, that it, not let it control us, be willing to give it out and to let others, to bless others with the income that God has given to us. This week we're going to look at the last five admonitions. Starting in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 through 19. The very first one, we're going to see the writer here, he says, Remember your leaders. Look at verse 7. What does he say there? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. And he's talking specifically about those who spoke the word of God, those who taught the word of God, those who they were their teachers, their discipleship leaders, their pastors, the leaders in their churches, those who taught them the word of God and specifically taught them the gospel and brought them along. He says, remember them. Remember them, and not just remember them as in, well, I remember who those people were, but literally to imitate them. And you imitate the word that they taught to them. 
Uh, he says here, we would expect that when you talk about somebody's leadership, that you would say, you know, we, we talk about respecting leadership or honoring leadership or greet your leaders in my name. That often happens in letters. But here he says, remember your leaders and mimic them, imitate them. You remember those specifically who have gone to give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Remember, this is during the first century. This was written during the first century when the church was being persecuted by the Romans and people were being rounded up, thrown in prison, thrown into the arena. Some of them were being burned at the stake. Some of them were being ripped apart by lions and other wild animals. Some of them were being used as target practice in the arena. They were being used for all kinds of things and gladiatorial, gladiatorial uh, tournaments and that kind of stuff. And many of them were their leaders because Rome thought if they could decapitate the church, they could get rid of the leaders, the leadership, the church would die. What they didn't realize is God was going to raise up new leaders behind the other ones, which he always does, right? If there's an absence of leadership here in this church for whatever reason, maybe I come down with COVID and I'm out for six, eight, 12 weeks, I expect somebody else to rise up in the leadership ability to stand up here and preach, to stand up here and teach, and to do what needs to be done, Adam. To do what needs to be done. Ron, Mike, Steve, Joe, Stephanie. I expect you guys, if there's and if, women, if there are no men here for whatever reason, I expect one of you to stand up here too and to teach each other. Okay? God will raise up the leadership. God will raise up the leadership. With, even if it, it tries to get decapitated, God will raise it up. So he says here literally, remember your leaders. Remember those who have fallen. Remember their lives. Remember how they lived their lives. Remember their teachings. Remember what it was they taught you from God's word. And remember, at that time, they were teaching them mainly, primarily from the Old Testament. You know, we like to focus on the New Testament a lot of times when we're preaching and we're teaching. But the early church, they didn't have the New Testament. They were still writing the New Testament. It was still coming out. And so their teachings were primarily from the Old Testament as they taught the church, this is who Jesus was. This is how we can trace Jesus from the very beginnings of Genesis all the way through the end of Malachi. We can see the life of Jesus, the Messiah, proclaimed. And then we see God's plan for the world proclaimed through the Old Testament. That's why I hate when some of, the, some of these pastors that are and some of these churches now, now they're like, well, we just need to ignore the Old Testament because it really doesn't have any substance, doesn't have any kind of meaning or, or leaning toward our lives today. Just focus on the New Testament. And beyond that, focus on the red words, just the words of Christ, right? If we really believe that this is God's word, the whole thing, we'd be preaching and teaching the whole thing, right. not just segments of it. From the first part of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it is all valid and trustworthy and worthy of being studied and read and studied and read and put into our lives. So it says, remember those who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Remember their teachings. Remember their faithfulness and their sacrifices. Those leaders who sacrificed themselves for you, who gave up time from away from their families, who gave up time, maybe they sacrificed their health. Maybe they sacrificed their, themselves monetarily. They sacrificed for you church. And hopefully everybody sitting here or watching online today, you've all got somebody in your mind who has sacrificed, who's taught, who's been a part of your life and has brought you along to where you are now in your faith in Christ. I remember my very first discipleship leader. 
Jimmy Stewart. I was 10th grade. And besides getting locked out of my car at his Bible study at his house one night, I remember the impact he made by inviting all these teenagers into his house. He wasn't our youth pastor. I didn't even go to his church at the time. He invited us into his house and he said, I want to teach you how to study God's Word. I want to impart some wisdom and knowledge. I want to give you a desire and a passion for God's Word. And as I sat there, and we sat there for a year at his house, once a week, we'd go, there, we'd go through the Bible together, go through the Bible together, go through the Bible together. And I learned how, for the very first time, how to study God's Word for myself. I learned how to sit down and read a passage, and then write in my journal about that passage, and pray about that passage. And I saw God begin to do a work in my life. Because Jimmy encouraged me to do it. I still keep in touch with him a little bit. Um, he, he's now an elder of one of the churches that I grew up in, actually, now. But uh, and I still attribute a lot of my growth and my learning, my passion for God's Word and for growing and impacting other people from Jimmy. Not my youth pastor, not my pastor. But this very simple man who invited these teens into his house and said, let me show you how exciting God's Word is. So that can be each and every one of us. You can be that leader in somebody else's life. You don't have to have a position and a platform and a pulpit to stand behind to impact people. Discipleship happens one-on-one. -on -one. And if we're called to make disciples, it happens one-on-one -on -one with others. Even Paul talks with us with Timothy. You see here in Timothy chapter, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he urges Timothy to imitate his conduct. Paul says, imitate me. I'm teaching you. I'm imparting knowledge and wisdom upon you. You imitate me. You imitate me in life and patience and love and suffering. You imitate me. Discipleship consists of living our lives before others in such a way that they learn from us. Right? That's what Paul was doing with Timothy. That's what Jimmy did with me. That's what I've done with others. And bring people along and one-on-one, one-on-one, one-on-two, and you live life before others so they can see your strengths and your failings. And they see how you get through those things so that we are making disciples together as the body of Christ. These leaders mentioned here in verse 7, they testified about Christ with the very manner of life. And we should imitate such leaders today. I want to encourage you, if there's a man or woman in your life who's impacted you in some way in the past, write to them and let them know that. Be an encouragement. During this Thanksgiving season, write that person, email them, send them a message, call them, and say, Jimmy, thank you for the time you spent with in me. The life that you gave that impacted my life for Christ. Thank you so much for the cause of Christ. He may not have a big platform. He may not be the podcast preacher, but just somebody simple. If there's somebody who did that for you, would you write them this week? Let them know that, that they made an impact in your life and your family. So number one, remember your, actually this is number six, remember your leaders. Number seven, remember your Savior. Remember your Savior. Admonition number eight. Number seven, seven, remember your Savior in verse eight. He says here, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, period. 
He never changes. While I was studying this week, I, 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 all of a sudden as I was going through this, this section right here, I wrote on Facebook, I said, there's no such thing as a new improved Christianity. I just kind of threw it out there. And some of my friends wrote back, like, yes, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I go, you got it. That's where I got it from. <laughs> you know, I just was, and people were, they were excited. They were just being a reminder of how Jesus never changes. He is the same. He is the same in Genesis chapter 1 as he will, as he will be in Re, at the end of Revelation chapter 22. He will never change. His love, his passion has never changed. His desire to reach the lost has never changed. His passion, his desire for you and for me to see us grow in our faith and our knowledge of who he is has not changed. We may think we let him down. And we get frustrated with our lives. This man, I'm not spending time in God's word like I should be. I'm not spending time in prayer like I should be. Or man, I messed up and I cussed. I did this sin. I committed this sin. I've got to let you down again. God says, I'm not letting. I'm not giving up on you. I still love you. I'm still going to use all these things in your life to draw you into his relationship with me. Malachi 3, 6 says, I am the Lord and I do not change. When our lives get hectic and in flux, we don't have to worry about Christ changing. When stuff around us is going off and we're getting COVID announcements on our phones and everything else, and, and we're like, oh, what's, what's going to happen now? Are we going to be shut down or are we going to be locked down or are we going to still have freedom? It doesn't matter. Christ doesn't change. He stays the same. When life around us is all hectic and worried about toilet paper on the shelves again, I'm else worried about toilet paper on the shelves. I'm like, what is the deal? Again? Toilet paper scarcity part two, again, what's up with that? Don't worry, I've got five cases on order for the church, so you can always come here and go to the bathroom, all right? So we're good to know, so you're okay. I jumped out and got five, five 96 roll cases coming this week. Stephanie, we gotta find a place for those cases. <laughs> She's like, oh great, we'll put them right next to your desk, don't worry about it. Maybe we'll set them up and the boys can jump into it while they're up here during the week. We'll have fun, we'll, we'll find something to do with them. But so we, What's up with the toilet paper? And all around us is freaking out. Christ doesn't change. His love for us doesn't change. His passion for us does not change. Our leaders die or they come and go. I mean, I'm the eighth pastor of this church. Seven others have come and gone before me over the 62 years the church has been around. Every time a pastor changes, there's a big Time of flux, everybody is wondering what's going on. Is this new guy coming in? He's a young book. Is he going to totally change everything? Is he going to change our music? Is he going to change our translation? Is he going to change the way we dress? We have to dress in church. Is he going to change his hairstyle? Or is he going to have no hairstyle? No, what, what's up with this new? It's always fear whenever a new pastor comes in. Leaders may change in church and in government. Jobs come and go. Human relationships change. But Jesus will forever be faithful to his children, to you and I. There is no such thing as a new improved Christianity, as I said before. There is no upgraded app to download to improve your faith. There is no plan B. There is only plan A. Jesus is the plan. 
His plan for mankind is you and I and the church reaching out into our communities and to those around us to share the great news of Jesus Christ, to share the news of a renewed and a new life that we can all experience together. That is the plan. Wherever you work, shop, eat, play, and live, that is the plan to share the message. Maybe somebody's coming to your house and they're throwing concrete in the backyard, putting a new patio in for you, right? Take an opportunity, don't sleep in. Go out and talk to them. Let your ear listen to what the conversation is and inject some truth into the conversation. You're at work, you're at lunch, and you're listening to people around you. Listen, and maybe you'll have an opportunity to jump in to a conversation and inject some truth about how great God is. You're at Starbucks. I used to work go to Starbucks all the time and study. That was my, my study place. And I would go in there, one, because I could kind of ignore everybody if I wanted to, put my headphones in and just ignore but also, it was amazing how many times I'm in there and God brings somebody sitting right next to me at my table. And I'm like, really? Do you not see me studying right here? But then God gets a hold of me and I'm like, okay, while I'm studying, I'm listening. While I'm studying, I'm looking over. And I begin asking questions. We'll have a conversation with this person over here. And it's amazing how many times if you just get out of your own little window, your own little box, and you listen, and you open your eyes and your ears to the world around you, God will put people in your path to just speak into and inject some truth into their lives. You don't have to know all the deep theological questions and the answers. Just speak the truth. Just speak the truth. You tell them your story. You tell them that God, God, you're having a marriage problem? God can fix that. You're having problems with money? God can fix that. You're having problems with fear about COVID? God can fix that. It doesn't take much. God will use you to impact others. Jude 3, Jude writes this. He says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. Jude, the brother of Jesus, who rejected Jesus while Jesus was alive, became a believer later. And he writes this, he became one of the leaders of the church. He writes this, I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. It has not changed. The same faith that Abraham and Isaac and Adam and Eve and all those in the Old Testament had is the same faith we have now in 2020. The 6,000, 8,000 years that humans have been here on this world, this earth, the faith they've had in God has not changed. It is the same because God is the same. Remember the faithfulness of our Christian leaders, he says. Do not be led astray by anything contrary to the unchanging Christian message. Number eight, remember the good teachings. Remember the good teachings that you've been taught. Look what he says. Remember, just as Jesus is unchanging, the person of Jesus is unchanging, so is his message, right? We can find all kinds of strange teachings coming from leaders these days. If you want to go listen to Tony Robbins, he's going to say some things that are good, some things that are not so good. You can go listen to any self-help guru that's out there, and they're going to give you a little bit of truth and a little bit of stuff that's not so good. You've got to wade through that. But the message of Jesus does not change. What are some of the things he the author here is remind, 
encouraging them to pay attention to. He says, one, we should be strengthened by grace, not foods. Well, I'm not, I don't rely on food. Okay, think of it this way. How about the external rules required for our sanctification? The early church, especially the Hebrews, the Jewish people at that time, they were struggling with this idea of changing their dietary laws. They had been raised from the time they were little in the law of Moses and told, eat this, don't eat this, eat this, don't eat this, and eat it this way. And now that they're in this new, under this new covenant, Jesus has come and died and been resurrected, and now the early church is going on, and they're now being given the freedom for a lot of different reasons, we don't have time to get into right now. They've been given the freedom now to change their dietary rules and to begin able, they're now able to eat without self, without sin and without guilt, all these other things in, in society. And yet, when they did, it was hard for them because they've been taught from the time they were little don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Those external rules that they taught made them sanctified, made them more like God. Verse 9 says it this way, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. Did you see that? They're still observing those things, but it hasn't benefited them spiritually. All those external rules, all those do's, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, all those do's and don'ts, it hasn't really benefited them or brought them closer to God at all. Those Old Testament food laws, they kind of took on a life of their own in the Jewish culture and in the early church as well. Or it became a, a standard, it became a, a, uh, a test, a test of somebody's spirituality. You eat pork, you're not spiritual. You don't eat pork, okay, you eat that? No, I'm sorry, you can't. You don't eat that? Okay, you can come over here. It became a real test of whether somebody was a believer in Christ or not. It became a point of really animosity and, and, and causing division within the church. And so Paul had to write about it in Galatians. He says, stop it. Just stop it. The grace and the law, they, they, they're, they're not incompatible together, but you're lifting one up over the other. We need to be people of grace and offering grace to others. Let them change as, as the Holy Spirit works in their hearts. For some people, when they become a Christian, they become a believer in Christ, boom, there's immediate change. You see old habits and old practices going by the wayside, dropping off so quickly. But for others, it takes a while to change some of those old habits. And we expect everybody to be popping and be jumping in and become just like we are overnight. And that doesn't happen. Remember how long you've been a believer and how far you still have to go in your faith. Seven years old, been a believer now for 44 years, 45 years almost. I ought to have it down. But I've still got so far to go in my faith as I strive, strive each and every day to become more like Christ. Many Jews who turned to Christ brought those food practices into the church and expected even the Gentiles who weren't raised with those to fit into the dietary mold. 
But our salvation is by grace through faith, not grace through food. The same goes not expecting those other external laws to show somebody's spirituality. The second thing he says here in verse 10 through 14, he says, We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have the, the right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest is a sin offering or burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bury his disgrace, for we do not have an enduring city here, instead we seek the one to come. Excuse me. In other words, Jesus is the better altar, the better sacrifice. If we're talking about Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, he is the better altar and the better sacrifice. The altar that the, the Jews worshipped at, they brought their sacrifices to inside the temple, they burned up those bodies, those animals, and they took those Remain corpses, those crisps, they dumped them into a wheelbarrow, wheeled it outside into the gates, and into the refuse heap. All, all that was left over. The part they didn't use. It was just dumped outside the gate and served no purpose. And yet, the author, what he's saying here is that Jesus is the new, he's part of the new covenant altar. As he hung on the cross, his Outside the camp. Remember, he, he carried his cross through the city, through the city streets, out to the hill of Golgotha, and he was sacrificed. He was crucified outside the city, up on the hill, for you and I. Where the refuse and the bodies were tossed, that's where Jesus was sacrificed. The author is saying here that his sacrifice was greater than those other animals. Where their blood, as it came poured down over the altar, their blood merely temporarily covered the sins. It didn't do away with the sins. It just was a temporary measure to kick, the, kick their sins on down the road, kick the can down the road until the Messiah came. When the Messiah came, he was sacrificed for us outside the walls of the city, up on the hill of Golgotha, and his blood actually makes us holy because he makes us like him. When we receive Christ, when we ask him to come into our lives as believers and we ask him to come in and cleanse us, his blood makes us holy in God's eyes. And we know we still sin here and now, but in God's eyes, he looks at me, he looks at you, he doesn't see all the sins. He sees Christ because it's Christ's blood that is now covering our sins and God says, you are holy. Welcome into my heaven that I have prepared for you. That's awesome. That is amazing. This message is what the author is saying. Remember this message. Remember this. Remember those teachings. Don't get caught up in all the little things. Remember the great, awesome sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the world. Number nine. We're to offer up, we ourselves are to offer up a better sacrifice. Rather than just taking the animals to the temple, we're to offer up a better sacrifice. Look what he says in verse 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. 
that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Because of Christ and the new covenant, we no longer offer these animal sacrifices. His sacrifice was once and for all, for all people, period. God's wrath has been fully satisfied by the atonement of Christ. Think about that for a minute. The millions and millions and billions of people who have lived on this earth and every single one of their sins has been satisfied by Christ if they receive it. The potential for all their sins to be satisfied. Let's put it that way. But they must receive his gift. They must receive that atonement. It doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't just happen naturally. Every person must make that decision themselves to receive and accept. But that one death, that one atonement, that one sacrifice was enough for all mankind. The seven billion who are here on this earth right now and the billions or trillions that have lived prior to now. I don't know how many people have lived since the beginning of time. A lot. <laughs> A lot. But that one death was enough to cover all those sins. That blows my mind. Here, mankind has been trying to work their way to God. They're trying to get to God. They're trying to get to God. Trying to get to God all this time. And yet, trying to do it by themselves. And yet God came one time and did it. Took care of it. So what is our, so then if he did that for us, what is our sacrifice? Number one, we're going to offer ourselves. We offer ourselves to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says it this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of how merciful God is and all that he's given to us, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship, Paul says. This is your true worship, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So first off, we have to offer ourselves. We offer ourselves. Say, God, whatever you want, however you want, wherever you want, whoever you want me, I'm willing to do it. God, I offer me. I offer my family. I offer myself. Secondly, we offer our praise. We just read that about in verse 15. It says, offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name, right? We don't offer up names in our own power. We do, it through, through, we do so through Jesus. He's our mediator. We only bring simple praise to the Father when we do it through his Son. The fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Not my name. I don't praise myself. I don't try to praise our, praise our church. I don't try to pray, praise any of you. All praise and glory and adoration is aimed and deserved by God. Period. Period. We're to lift up praises. We come here, we sing on Sunday mornings. 
Or when you're buying or entering your, your house, be bopping around the house, maybe you're mopping, you're sweeping, you're doing dishes, and a song comes to your mind, man, start singing those praises to God. I was laying on the, on the couch last night about nine o'clock. My eyes were closed. I was kind of dozing off, going back and forth to sleep. And I hear Regina back in the kitchen. She's just singing, just singing away. Hallelujah. Just singing praises to God while she's doing dishes. Hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty reigns. Just praising God. Because that is what's in her heart is what's going to come out of your mouth. Whatever is within you is what's going to come out of your mouth, what's going to come out of your life. Are we praising God and singing praise to him on a regular basis? Our lips echo what we believe in our hearts, a continual sacrifice of praise that confesses and acknowledges Jesus, our great we also offer our possessions. So we offer ourselves, we offer our praise, and we offer our possessions. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We share our stuff. We share our toilet paper. We share our hand sanitizer. We share our house. We share rides. We share our things that God has blessed us with. Those things that you have are not given to you just so that you can purely enjoy them. They're to be used. God's service. We share our possessions. See, God is pleased with those who do what is right and meet the material needs of others in the church and outside the church. I talked last week about that, how God convicted me because I was not willing to help somebody. And God used one of my daughters to convict me that I need to be a little more open and not just be so close-minded. So, okay, God, <laughs> you know. These simple acts of love that we do for people, look, that pleases God. That pleases God. Lastly, we need to submit and pray for your church leaders. Submit to and pray for your church leaders. Verse 13, 17 through 19. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. You hear it? Just kidding, not that way. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have been given, who will have to give an account. Pressure on my heart. I'm going to have to give an account for how I manage and how I lead this church. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that will be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. In other words, we submit to what is taught in God's word. Not necessarily submitting to me as the pastor, but you submit to the teachings of God's word. You let these things, this thing become the foundation of your life and you let this mold and transform you and become a part. God uses me, hopefully, to remind you of different things throughout the week. God uses me, hopefully, on Sunday mornings to remind you of things that he's going to work in your heart through that week. That is part of my job as the pastor. Also, I'm there to pray for you. I'm there to engage you, to be a part of your life every single, throughout the week. Maybe not at your house. Hey, how you doing? But I'm praying for you. I'm there for you. 24-7. This is not a 9-to-5, 40-hour-a-week job. In fact, being a pastor is not a J-O-B at all. 
It is not a job. I joked that, uh, that when, when guys go to, when they're leaving one church or going to another, they're looking for a church to go pastor at. In the workforce, you send your resume, you submit your resume, you, you fill out those applications and you submit a resume to get a job. But this is not a job. It's a calling from God. When a pastor comes to your church, it's an agreement between the pastor and that church that God is bringing the two together. The world's the government views it as a job, and you've got to pay taxes on that job. We understand all that. But in, in, in God's economy, it is much more than that. It's a 24-7, 365-day-a-year deal. There's no time off. I may take vacation from time to time, but there's no time off from praying and being engaged and worrying about the people that God has given to me. Even when I'm on vacation, my mind goes back to you guys and wondering how you're doing and what's going on. When I'm at home and I don't see you during the week, some of you I see, like Adam lives across the street from me, so I get to watch him. Sometimes. Or I, or I run into Ron at different places, or I see someone from time to time, or I see you on Facebook or on social media, and that reminds me to pray for you to be engaged and involved in your life. I am thinking about you constantly as your pastor. So when, the, when he writes here, he says, submit to your leaders, he's not saying submit to me as you would a boss, but you listen to the teachings, and you take those teachings to heart, and you try to incorporate them into your daily life. We are held to a higher accountability. James 3 1 says it this way. Now many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Ouch. <laughs> I'm, am, I, am I living out what I'm teaching? Is your, is your Bible study teacher or Bible study leaders, are they living out daily what they're teaching you in your Bible study class? As you're discipling somebody, as you're working with them, as you're teaching their kids, they are worse. Our kids, and those of us who we know this, our kids are the first ones to point out we mess up. Right, Tori? Our kids are the first ones to point out when I've messed up. Because they are with us all day long and they see how there are times I just don't live like I speak, like I preach. So we're to submit to what is taught. And lastly, it says there, pray for your leaders. Pray for them. Pray for the clear conscience as we strive faithfully to lead Christ's church. That we might not bring reproach on the gospel. And that sin would stay far from us as your leaders. There have been too many pastors, too many pastors who have been forced to resign from their churches over the past couple of years because they've let sin into their lives. They've cause a reproach on the gospel of Jesus Christ because they've let selfishness and sin enter into their lives. They thought they could keep it hidden and they did for a short time. But eventually, sin will find you out. And the more public your platform, the more public your sin is going to be. Pray for me. Pray for my family. Pray for other church leaders around our city and our state and our country that God would protect them Keep them safe, keep them from sin, that their lives would not be a reproach on the gospel of Christ. Final words, final thoughts.
as he wrote, show love toward the saints, show love toward strangers, show love toward the mistreated. Honor your honor marriage, hold it in high honor. Hold money loosely. Remember the sacrifice of your savior. Remember the altar. Offer up a better sacrifice. Remember the good teachings and submit to the teachings of God and the Word of God. And I hope and pray that as we do those things as the body of Christ and remember that Jesus is greater than any problem we might have, that he will continue to use us to impact this community around us. We bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute as Karis comes to Here's Joe come and lead us in a final song this morning. Where are you in your, your relationship with Christ? Where are you in your relationship with Christ? Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I've just got such a long way to go. I've got such a long way to go. I've messed up. I messed up again this week. That's okay. God is the God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, 400 chances, 4,000 chances. God is there. Take just a second, you and God, and confess to him those areas that you've fallen and ask him to strengthen you for the battle ahead.